papermen meet such interesting people. They know the lowdown, now it can be told. I'll tell you quite reliably off the record about some charming people I have known. For I meet politicians and grafters by the score. Killers plain and fancy, it's really quite a bore. Oh, newspapermen meet such interesting people. They wallow in corruption, crime and gore. Ting-a-ling-a-ling, city desk. Pull the press, pull the press. Extra, extra, read all about it. It's a mess meets the test. Oh, newspapermen meet such interesting people. It's wonderful to represent the press. Welcome to the Media Project, an inside look at media coverage of current events. I am not Rex Smith. I'm Judy Patrick, former editor of the Daily Gazette, and now I'm vice president for editorial development for the New York Press Association. I'm filling in for Rex while he is away. Joining us today is investigative journalist and RPI and Albany professor Rosemary Armeo, Barb Lombardo, former editor of the Saratogian and adjunct professor at the U at UAlbany, and WAMC's own news director Ian Pickus. Thank you all for being with us. Second bite of the apple. We got the band back together for a second week. All right. Let's make yeah. some music. So let's start with uh, the trolling of a Wall Street reporter after she dared asked the Indian Prime Minister a question about human rights. Reporter Sabrina Siddiqui has come under a barrage of attacks on social media since she asked Prime Minister Narinda Modi a question about human rights during a state visit last week. The harassment has included threats, slurs, and baseless accusations that Siddiqui asked the question out of political bias. Siddiqui, by the way, is a Wall Street Journal reporter. The critics and attackers have arranged from anonymous trolls to at least one Indian government official with ties to uh, Modi's Hindu Nationalist Party. Siddiqui was only one of two reporters who was even asked a question or even called on at this news conference with Biden, one that was shorter than most of Biden's previous news conferences with state leaders. So first question, was it a fair question and was the blowback fair? Oh, it's a great question, and one that um, we don't, we being journalists of the world, don't frequently have a chance to ask Modi, who avoids the press. But I am not a fan of the White House press corps, have not, never been, but I do like the idea that when st heads of state get together, to hold a joint conference and reporters from all sides get a chance to ask. It's frequently big news, you'll remember, in Helsinki uh, during the Trump-Putin uh, confrontation when a question about national security uh, resulted in the shocking um, admission by Trump that he uh, believed uh, Putin rather than his own national security people. And then there was the famous one in uh, Baghdad back in 2008 when George W. Bush uh, was speaking uh, soon after our occupation and uh, an Arab journalist threw a shoe, which is a big insult, threw a shoe at, um, at Bush. So I love the fact that um, they have to expose themselves. They would be called cowards and probably uh, would, would lose the chance to speak at all with our leader if they didn't do this. Um, and Modi saw it as an ambush, saw it as an ambush, a completely legitimate question that any leader in the world should expect. Um, he gave actually a you know a nothing answer. Oh, democracy's in our blood. It's in our spirit. Oh yeah, we're just great, and then turned on the 
forces of the trolls in his own government. She, I applaud the Wall Street Journal for defending the uh, reporter as well and keep on asking the hard questions. One of the challenges of asking a hard question at that kind of news conference is, is just the format. You really get to ask one question, even if it's a wordy question. You're not able to provide specifics. You're not able to follow up. So it puts a, an issue out there, which I do applaud her for putting that issue out there. And and I his answer was totally expected to say, you know, well, what do you mean? We're a democracy. When you know, what, what are you talking about? And uh, and taking her down for for asking a question, but in the world of journalism questions, it was a it was an okay starter, but it's it really fell short of uh, where she didn't cite reports that that our own State Department has done and that other organizations have done to say specifically uh, this had to do with discrimination and attacks against Muslims. And I think it would have been a better question if she could have thrown in some specifics into her question as opposed to a, what are you going to do about uh, fairness? Yeah, and, um, but that's a weakness with the whole system. So the fact that she even got a question in was pretty good. There's a format to these things when there's a high-level state visit, and it is a couple of questions, and typically there are one or two that are going to be uncomfortable. It's interesting to me because we know President Biden has done fewer press conferences than most of his predecessors in the modern time, so this is a rare chance to actually get him up there, too, for uh, a White House press conference. And, you know, as a reporter, you're put in a, a tough situation there. Uh, because the whole world, or at least those who are paying attention to these superpowers, is watching, uh, and you only have one shot to do it, and you're trying to serve as potentially a counterbalance on a state visit that's not going to address this particular issue uh, while the U.S. and India talk about their future together. So I have uh, a lot of empathy for (laughs) being in that situation, and then the blowback that the reporter faces, uh, that's a tough job. You know, I initially thought that, you know, reporters have to be tough. They're going to be criticized. Uh, We're making too much of this. But then I took a harder look at exactly what was happening to her. And it was personal. It was vile. It was uh, it was it was racist. It was um, it was at a level that encouraged violence against her. It, It revealed personal details about her life, her family that really was uncalled for. And and you know, as people who run news organizations, you have to worry about, we encourage our, our reporters, our journalists to get out there and develop a personal brand, but it comes back at them when they come under attack, and it can be very dangerous. Can I just point out, though, that it isn't Modi who is the only offender of this, our own Donald Trump, um, uh, regularly, and even recently with Caitlin Collins, called them names himself in person, much less encourage his followers to do the same, to troll them online. Women are journalists are much more subjected to that kind of harassment than male journalists. Do we encourage uh, people to develop these personal brands and get out there and let us know that they're hiking or they've got a dog and when indeed uh, the trolls will come at them. Mm -hmm. I think of something that's in my uh, colleague Sarah LaDuke's bio online which says a version of me is on the radio and I think that's kind of best practice for people and you know hopefully you you never find yourself in a situation like this as as a local reporter but it does happen. I mean we've all had those creepy calls or those emails about specific details in your life uh, when they don't like a story, somebody thinks that you've been unfair to them. Uh, I think it's a terrible 
uh, side effect of our new access uh, model that we've established on social media where you you're absolutely right judy you want the clicks uh you want to have the brand you want to have people listen to what you're saying the downside of that is that's everybody everybody can access you now you should hear some of the things that happen on the wamc listener comment line that we don't play on the radio i mean it, it gets scary sometimes and that's it's, the WAMC crowd. Wow. <laughs> it's a, it's a reminder that moderation of these sites is, is totally necessary, that uh, to try to run a, a blog, a vlog, anything, a podcast with comments that is not moderated, is, it's just not doable. You get and, and this goes back to, I can remember in Cleveland in the, at the Plain Dealer, a print newspaper in the 1980s, getting the most racist, ugly, horrifying letters when you wrote about issues of equality and justice. So it just goes with the territory. I think all of this is a reminder that there's a certain amount of courage and bravery involved in journalism. It's not just a, you know, a regular office job. Hey, let's move on to one of our favorite topics. That's cable news. Uh, we love to talk about that. And this time, I th the issue is, did the cable news networks drop the ball on the Russian insurrection? Um, as the private mercenary group led loyal to Yergevny Pergozhin started to head to Moscow in what I viewed as an astounding insurrection, news of what was happening was hard to find. This happened about uh, midday Friday, our time, and uh, all through the afternoon into the evening, it was nearly impossible to find out what was happening. I was only alerted by a couple of my, uh, I follow Susan Glasser of The New Yorker, and she was saying, where's the news about this? Uh, the cable news was still f stuck on uh, the submersible. They were still stuck on Hunter Biden. Um, even Saturday morning, MSNBC was airing reruns of the Joe Scarborough um, morning show. So what happened? Uh, since I'm, I didn't grow up in, uh, in broadcast media, Ian, what do you think happened that they were so slow on the uptake? On I'm a little one? sympathetic. I think it's really hard to do breaking news well, especially when the events on the ground are so confusing and difficult to follow. And I know we bash NPR a lot on this show, but credit where credit's due. They have uh, a reporter on the ground in Russia. They have a reporter on the ground in Ukraine, and they've been bringing them on together to talk about developments in the last few days uh, when Prigozhin apparently cut this deal to go to Belarus. And you need people there to, one, explain you know, who this group is, who they're answering to, and then two, to try to figure out from a very opaque state what Putin is saying and what he means. Where is he? What, you know, what, what are the uh, subtext of his comments? I think that's very hard to pull off live. Uh, you're going to be behind a story like that. And, uh, you know, we all know that cable news chat shows are much easier to make than news coverage, and that's why they do them. Um, I think it's really interesting to have heard the complaints because what we normally hear on non-crisis days is how, why do we have to have 24-7 news? Uh, see, the <laughs> CNN ruined everything, you know, that before then to, to, to wait half a day, which is all it was before you begin to get comprehensive reporting of a crisis was normal. This gave politicians a chance to say, oh gosh, what's going on? We got to figure this out. It gave news people a chance to put the experts together who could really give them information. That breather we have lost and we have missed since the start of CNN. This time, 
what would they have said if they had come on a noon on Friday? They didn't know much noon on Saturday, which is about when I began listening to it. So I don't think it was a big loss. But you got complaints from diplomats saying, where's CNN? You know, uh, Gerald McFaul, the former ambassador to Russia, was was one of the early people on Twitter, I think, who was uh, complaining about CNN not being there. Why did he need CNN? It's... We do need it. We have really changed our habits. We want instantaneous, complete coverage. And the fact is, even now, days later, as we're, as we're taping this, we still don't know exactly what happened or why or what the implications are. What would they have known noon on Friday? Right, but the BBC was on it. That being said, once they got in the groove, um, CNN proved what it was, its glory, it went back mm-hmm. to its glory days. When I heard Wolf Blitzer on the air on a Saturday morning, great. I'm thinking, wow, this really is serious. And they um, kind of redeemed themselves because they've had a tough couple of years with a lot of, of scandals and controversies and upheavals. And so uh, kudos to CNN for doing a stellar job. Sky News uh, and BBC also, they were very, very much on the mark too. You know, and the one uh, medium that used to be really great at breaking news, Twitter, was okay, but not what it used to be, and it was, and that it was hard to sort truth from fiction. Do they have one. any new staff anymore? Any staff at all anymore? Just Elon, isn't he yeah, running right. the whole thing? Oh, and the new, the new director he appointed, I forgot her name already. Right. Oh yeah, nobody's moderating that anymore. Yeah. It, it, it is a, a junkyard at, at times, and in, and in, in this case, there were glimpses of the truth, and you had to rely on whoever was tweeting. And now they don't even have blue check marks usually as a badge of honor. So. Uh, Twitter failed, I think, on this one as well. 100%. I mean, you just can't use it the way you did two years ago in a situation like this. Um, I think those days are over. You can't fix it. Yeah, you remember Twitter was the first place that we found anything about the raid on bin Laden's uh, compound uh, in in Pakistan. And around that same time, the Arab Spring happened on Twitter. And I just probably can't happen on that platform again. No, no, I think you're right. It's still pretty good for finding out why there's traffic backed up in the area <laughs> if some if somebody is going still going to Twitter but beyond the region beyond that yeah you don't see anything here's a topic a newspaper topic and then whether or not uh, print is dead which we've discussed at length and, and can we still call them dailies many of the daily newspapers owned by Lee Enterprises which owns 77 newspapers across the country are cutting their print schedule to just 3 days a week um, and they're also ending traditional delivery. That's by car- by not by newspaper boys anymore, but by post by carriers that drive cars. They're going instead to the U.S. Postal Service. This is all happening in July. It's happening to most of the dailies in the Lee uh, in the Lee Enterprises fold. Uh, some of the bigger dailies are ne- are still sticking with seven day coverage. But was this inevitable? And seriously, can we still call them dailies? Well, they're, they're going to want to label themselves as dailies because they're promising that they're going to have online coverage every day. You know, it's hard, it's hard not to be skeptical about what kind of coverage that's going to be because these are uh, almost always accompanied by a decrease in staff. So you have fewer people producing content than you did before, no matter, no matter what. Right. You do this, you, you cut print. To save money on paper, to save money on press runs, and to save money on um, to save money on content, you don't produce quite as much stuff that way. And they're doing it at a time when they're facing declining revenues. But our position, when I worked at the Daily Gazette, was that reading at a print newspaper was a habit, a daily habit. You wanted to encourage it, and you didn't want to break the habit. And I think for a lot of newspaper readers, they, they will be breaking their habit. 
you know, you're all uh, all veterans of this world, and but I would just say, uh, as somebody who does read a print newspaper, doing a robust seven day a week, twenty four seven news website, social media, uh, podcast platform, whatever, that's a lot harder than putting out a daily print product uh, for a set number of pages that has a deadline and gets printed at a certain time. So my worry would be if you're dropping down to three days, are you sacrificing so much of, I mean, they wouldn't be doing it if things were going well, obviously. It's much more difficult to become that uh, online source around the clock than it is to put that paper out. And obviously that's not going to happen in 77 markets. The, the truth is that this is all um, the, the pattern that we've seen for the last 15 years. It isn't just that they're cutting back editions. It isn't just that they're removing paper. They're going to cut staff. They're going to mm-hmm. get cheaper and cheaper and lousier reporters, and the reporter's going to cover. It is not doing more with less or any of the other empty advertising things. This is the death of newspapers. We're not reading them anymore. And I actually am more upset about the loss of a monthly National Geographic. Mm-hmm. We had stacks of them in our in our. I, I'm sorry that I gave away a whole bunch of them now. Uh, after 130 years, that publication is going away. The thing they did that was so remarkable was pay writers and photographers enough money so they could spend like a year researching a, a project in a remote place, and that's going to all end. And now they're going to contract out work. They'll, they'll hire freelancers who will not put that time and effort in. What was the line in the Washington Post story about how National Geographic is going to go forward? Uh, it stuck out to me, if I can find it here. Um, they are going to use a series of editors and freelancers to kind of patch Correct. things together. National yeah. Geographic? I know. I'm one of those people who thinks National Geographic is great but never buys it. Right. So I have no one but myself and everyone else to blame. And yet they had well over a million subscribers in the United States and millions others but around their, the world. But at but their height, they had 12 million. 12 million. That's, that's yes. hard to imagine anymore and for a print product. Yeah, absolutely. Right. This this involves 19 editorial staffers who, who are losing their, their jobs. They're going to keep some editors. Um, and they're going to go with freelancers. And the question, real, they go with freelancers because you don't have to pay them benefits at all. They don't, I don't know if they still had a pension or not. Freelancers probably will get paid, could be 1000 2000 3000 But does it compensate them for the amount of time that the stories would no. take? And the other thing that the mag, so the magazine's not going to be sold on newsstands anymore. Um, I think it will be printed and distributed, and there'll be, of course, your digital version. And then there's this Nat, there's Nat Geo, which is you know the, the doing high quality video. Uh, but the magazine also curtailed their photo contract, so uh, which allowed photographers to go out and wander, you know, the Sahara or wander the world and take Serengeti. those, those yeah. great photos. And so. A lot of papers, we, you know, we've all used freelancers over the time, but we, it's been a, to supplement. But I can understand the switch to freelance writers. That kind of makes sense. But how much time are they going to be able to spend on a story? Uh, maybe sometimes they were in the field longer than they had to be because they could be. Maybe you could do a story in three months instead of five months or... Ugh. 
Well, the the magazine is going to fold. I think. I think this is a stopgap measure before it goes away. If they if people didn't buy it when you had high class, amazing photography and writing, what are they going to do when it's um, you know discount, uh, low cost freelancers? It's going away, and that's really sad. But the truth is, it is not the fault of the owners. I think the managers who are making business decisions. It's us, the readers. We're not. Will we buy books on these topics? You know, if you ever need any National Geographic, just go to a yard sale, and you usually can find boxes. <laughs> you can. Yeah, yeah they're going to triple in price now. The old ones, right? It's the new. It's the 2023 editions that are worthless. It's why I wanted to go to Africa. I grew up with, you know, a, a neighbor had National Geographic's in a bookshelf, and I I would look at the pictures. Not mostly the pictures, which of course for a little kid, are famously um, shocking. Yeah, yes, yeah. erotic. Yeah. But, uh, but I but I loved I loved it, and and I always wanted to go there because of that. And I I'm sad that that's lost, but I feel like a dinosaur even as I'm saying it. I think Maybe. I wanted to go to Hugh Hefner's house for the same reason. Oh no. <laughs> You know, this isn't to say that freelance. Some really good work is done by freelancers. Some of the best journalists in the world are freelancers, but it's a tough life, and it, it is a tough way to make a living. It really encourages better work instead of being a freelancer if you if you have a full time gig someplace. One thing I've learned just working with freelancers on a different scale, though, uh, you know, it's they're great. You can't count on them. You can't build a news organization on freelancers. I always look at freelance work for WAMC as extra. We've got our staff, and that's our daily heartbeat. And if we can get a great freelance story from a part of our listening area that we're not in all the time, uh, great. It's helpful. Uh, It's not how you go forward into a new budget year planning for your news coverage. Right. Right, and there's all sorts of legal issues too about libel and, and, and slander, and uh, you know who has reprint rights on on a li- on a freelance um, piece, whether or not it's perpetual, perpetually owned. You do you put them under contract for one piece? It's, it it can be a management nightmare. The other thing is uh, you're you're editing from afar when you do this. You're editing over the phone. I mean, this happens a lot in newsrooms. Anyway, but when you're when you're dealing with freelancers, it's more and more so. Um, you're not getting the discussion about well, why don't you take this story in this direction, or why don't we do the, that story? So, National Geographic, as are many magazines, are going to be missing this. And when you're vetting freelancers, not that much different than when you're vetting your own staff. But when you're vetting freelancers, you're depending on them to know what the heck they're doing and know what they're writing about. And the editors are. Um, often not going to be well-versed in the topics that they're editing. So they might be okay as uh, editing for for the story content and the word usage and that, but um, do they know enough to question what they are reading? Not a single one of my RPI students in my last class had a subscription to a magazine or had read one in the last month. Uh, moving on, so let's talk about uh, college newspapers. Uh, w- there are hundreds of them across the country. There's even high school newspapers, but particularly the Penn State's co- the La- Daily Collegian. It's 136 years old, and it's facing this financial uh, uh, disaster ahead because they're going to lose 
all the university funding by the 24-25 academic year. Uh, the university's board of trustees will vote on this funding slash in July. Uh, they the Daily Collegian is independent. It says from the university, but it does get more than half of yeah, its so budget. Not independent. We're not independent. They get uh, from four hundred seventy-five thousand to two hundred thousand dollars a year from the college to help them run the paper. Uh, the schools, the university is proposing no funding for the student-run newspapers in 2425. Uh, first of all, the issue of, of the funding, and then second of all, um, what what is the value of college newspapers for the for the industry going forward? Oh, I I have some thoughts on this. Uh, I am <laughs> a, a big believer in it. Um, I think it's where you learn, you make all of your mistakes. You learn from your mistakes, you try things out, you figure out how to actually do this work. I think they're really important. They're underutilized um, at you know, the University at Albany where some of us teach. Uh, this, the student paper has, has been a resource that is not uh, used by enough undergraduate students who say they wanna go into the field. Um, it's there for your limited amount of time that you're a college student. There are only so many issues and everyone that goes by without your byline in it is uh, a missed opportunity, in my opinion. Now, as to the funding, having worked at the student paper that did not get any money from the school when it ran out of money, uh, this is a very tough issue that papers not just at Penn State are dealing with. What does it mean to stay open? Uh, the paper that I came up on is not in print anymore, although it is online. But we took it as a real badge of honor that we didn't have any funding from the school because we didn't have to ever pull punches. And that was for better and for worse. I've had a different experience. I was at Syracuse in the 70s and did not join this. I did join the student paper and quit because it was during the Vietnam protests. This if you is wrote the Daily anything, Orange. The Daily Orange, another, you know, fabled student newspaper. But if you wrote a story that was um, journalistic piece, you know, that we were learning about in journalism class, it would be totally rewritten into a leftist screed. And so I quit. And um, and then at the Albany, uh, UAlbany, the paper there the is execrable. And um, the, you're the independence that you all value so much, you don't even want like copy editors, like uh, free teachers willing to read your copy for spelling errors. And it was it was horrible and not useful for clips and not a good experience. And the the business now is such that prospective journalism students should be working for community newspapers, working under real editors oh, who will boy. hold them to account you know and raise their standards. I would agree with you if some of the community newspapers were actually equipped to train. Um, this, the Gazette is an example of a paper where it would be a good place for students to be working. In the Times so is Union. the Times Union, so spotlight. I don't know that the Times Union is even taking interns these days. I know the, There's the Gazette definitely. The, the Gazette has been, and it's been yeah. wonderful for yeah. some of my students from UAlbany. Yeah. There are there but are they, legal issues and money issues. They don't want to pay yeah. interns, but slavery is sort of illegal. So how do you how do you get yeah, interns? Yeah, my old to... newspaper, when they don't have a location for people to have camaraderie, the <laughs> everybody mm -hmm. is working remotely. Mm -hmm. I don't think it's the learning yeah. experience. That said, um, I think that uh, UAlbany, the, the difference between the UAlbany paper, where there's a small cadre, very small cadre of students who are interested in doing this, as opposed to a place like... Syracuse or, or Penn State, Penn State mm -hmm. where the culture is totally mm -hmm. different as the bud as is the budget. 120 students yeah. involved in the Can school paper in Penn State. Yeah. Well, I hate to cut you off, but that's Aww. all the time we have. Oh, for no, the show should be an hour. Ah, yes, indeed. Thanks We're cutting back our print run. <laughs> <laughs> our yak run. <laughs> Thanks to Rosemary, Barbara, and Ian. 
Thanks also to our producer this week, Jody Cowan. I'm Judy Patrick. Thanks for joining us. We'll see you next week on The Media Project. The Media Project is a national production of WAMC Northeast Public Radio. This week's projectors include former editor of the Daily Gazette and vice president for editorial development for the New York State Press Association, Judy Patrick. Rosemary Armeo, investigative journalist and RPI and Albany professor. Barbara Lombardo, former editor of the Saratogian and adjunct professor at the University at Albany. And WAMC News Director Ian Pickus. You can listen to The Media Project anytime at WAMCpodcast.org or anywhere you get your podcasts. I'm your producer, Jody Cowan. Thanks for listening. Let's give free cheers of freedom of the press.